sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines. This is Rabbi Eris Sherman from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. This week we are joined by a legend in a sport that we have not spoken about yet. This is the sport of surfing. We are joined by Sean Thompson, world champion in 1977, and author of this amazing, inspiring book, The Surfer and the Sage by Sean Thompson and Noah Benshea. Sean, it is so great to have you here. Thanks for joining. Hey, Rabbi. It's great to be on the show. I'm sure that... Uh... That surfing uh, and uh, Judaism, uh, there's a connection there, but but I think not too many people know about it. <laughs> well, maybe we start with the crossing of the sea, where you think there were surfboards at that time with Moses. How did they get across that sea? <laughs> well, I think it was an exceptionally low tide, <laughs> and the tide was going out, and uh, Moses uh, Moses timed it perfectly <laughs> with some divine intervention. Divine intervention and miracles. Actually, the miracle of the sea is not that that happened, but that we're still talking about it today. And I think that's really your story right here of the surfer and the sage, that your journey is sort of improbable in terms of uh, both the suffering that you um, witnessed in your own family, but also the achievement and purpose in life that you have been able to, uh, to find and to inspire others as well. So let's just start from the beginning, because you're not from the United States, but uh how do you begin to love the ocean as a young person? The ocean is large and in charge. How does that love of the ocean come about? Yeah, large and in charge. I like that. Well, I I grew up on the beach in Durban, South Africa. Uh, my father was born in South Africa. His parents came over from um, from uh, from Riga uh, during the pogroms uh, at the turn of the century. Um, my mom was uh, was born in England. Grew up on the island of Malta in the Second World War, which was the most heavily bombed place in the history of the world, even to this day. She endured 3,600 air raids. Um, And then uh, the island eventually starved. It was a strategic uh, seaport in the Mediterranean uh, run by the British, and it was bombed by the Nazis and the the Italians. And then eventually she was evacuated after four years, ended up in South Africa, met my dad. They both loved the beach. They both loved the ocean. So my earliest memories are of growing up... um, of growing up right there uh, on the beach, my dad teaching me how to swim and surf. So it was sort of a natural progression. He'd been a great lover of, of the ocean and he'd been one of South Africa's top athletes during his youth. His dream was to was to swim for his country and, and win an Olympic gold medal. But then he was very badly attacked by a shark. Right. And it nearly killed him, nearly bit his arm off. Uh, but ultimately he survived. But both of them were people of faith. And they were both people of hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no matter what had happened to them in their youth, my dad with a terrible shark attack, my mom, you know, enduring 3,600 air raids, two direct hits. Um, they, they both had this optimism, this faith, this hope, this light, which I think really symbolizes our faith, light. And so that symbolizes the faith aspect. But now take us to the wave. I'm going to show you a quick video here of you uh surfing about what it means to catch the first wave. So let's watch this and talk about how that idea of faith and light goes into the ocean. My first memory of catching that first wave imprinted on me. And I think every surfer gets that 
feeling of seeing the world differently. And your life changes in that moment. You know, for me, there was more to surfing than just catching waves. I always looked at what surfing had to offer below the surface, getting that wave and riding through that tube of water that shot out the end like you're being shot out the end of a cannon. It's the sensation of just being in control and connected to the environment, connected to nature. So you catch that first wave. How do you do that? So many of us look out into the ocean and as a surfer, you look back into the land. What is that moment of catching that first wave? First of all, what are the technical skills that perhaps are involved? What are the actually emotional and mental strength that you need to actually catch that first wave? Well, like I said in the clip, when you catch that wave for the first time, for many people, it, it can be life-changing. And certainly when you jump up on that board for the first time and you look back towards the land and you ride back towards the land, you just see life differently. I mean, yes, you see it differently from um, sort of an analog perspective, but I think from a soul perspective, you just see the world differently. It's like you're riding on this band of energy that was created by a storm thousands of miles away and it's unseen, but you can feel it. And it's such a wonderful, um, it, it's such a wonderful sensation. So for me, there was certainly a gradual evolution because I started swimming. My dad taught me to swim and then he taught me how to body surf. And then we had these little, small little belly boards that we rode on. So it was sort of this, this gentle uh, progression. And uh, when I stood up on a board for the first time, I was ready to stand up on a board Mm -hmm. uh, for the first time so it wasn't um it wasn't uh, like i'd been through this process of instruction it was like a process of evolution uh, which is a great way i think for um for an athlete to develop a love there's no sort of uh, well you've got to do it this way this is the type of technique it, it was just sort of more learning by um osmosis and uh it was very much this sensation derived attraction you know i just love that sensation this feeling of 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 um connectivity or flow of um excitement of exhilaration so it's called being stoked when you know when you get stoked you get that sort of magnetic connectivity to to what you're doing and it's just a wonderful wonderful moment i mean a lot of athletes certainly it's your fundamental basis for being an athlete. You know, you have this incredible sensation that is derived from, from, from what you're doing, from being in a state of flow, being in a state of control, being in a state of optimum concentration. But, but certainly there is a difference with surfing because you're not bounded by rules. There's no real coach. There's no teammate. It's just you, you're bored in the ocean. So you have a different sort of elemental attraction and connectivity. And then also there's the danger aspect too. You know, there's the danger. I mean, sharks are always sort of a part of the, of part of my mental experience. But, you know, when you're riding a big wave, there's the danger of drowning. There's the danger of being hit by a coral reef. There's a danger of being run over by, by someone else. So there are many, many elements, many more elements at play I think with a surfer as opposed to football, baseball, basketball, it's different. It's not better. It's just very, very different. You actually talk a lot about waiting in this book. 
and waiting for the wave. They talk about the difference between waiting for nothing and waiting for the wave, that basically you're an individual, but there's lots of people out there. I'm sitting in Los Angeles, but when I take rides out to Malibu, often I see less people on a wave than waiting for the waves. I thought you put in a beautiful perspective that how you sort of play with the other people waiting while also respecting the individual. So what does it mean or what's the difference between waiting for nothing and then perhaps waiting for that sensation that you know when it's the right time it will be there? Well, you know, sit there and they wait. I mean, sometimes in certain conditions, you can sit there and wait for a wave for 30 minutes, 40 minutes without getting a ride. But you do have that sort of focus, that hope, that optimism that that wave is going to come to you. So even though there might be this perception that, what the hell are you waiting for? You're just waiting for a wave. You know, you're waiting for that experience and you're hopeful and optimistic that you're going to get that experience. And also the waiting process, you're being drifted north, south, east, west by the tides, by the winds, by the current, um, and then also by your positioning and the relative positioning of other people. So there is a lot of, even though it might seem that you're just sort of sitting there waiting aimlessly you're not sitting there waiting aimlessly and you certainly are very purpose-driven in the waiting process but you are sort of drifting which is which is wonderful it's sort of this languid feeling of floating and being in this little area between the ocean and the sky you're just floating on that sort of thin uh, surface tension it's 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 a wonderful feeling when you really think about what you're doing out there and you're sort of floating inside of the water because you're not floating really on top you're floating you're you're, you're maybe a, a one or two feet below the surface because you ride a small because i ride a small board so there's this feeling of of connectivity and being absorbed and part of nature it's wonderful it's actually interesting. It goes back to the book of Genesis and Breshit, the Rakia and Hashamayim, when God separated the heavens and the earth. And it seems like the surfer is that person, that thing in between that maybe connects what God separated in the beginning of a creation as well. I don't know if you ever yeah, thought yeah, of it in that way. Even the feminine. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So you, you say about surfing that no one has stood on a surfboard that did not fall off. I've spoken to many athletes and coaches and owners and managers and even fans and a uh, successful grade in sports is like 35%, right? As somebody who hits 300 in baseball is going to the hall of fame. Somebody who's shooting over 50% in basketball is just doing am amazing. Talk about the success rate of riding that wave and what it means to turn success into purpose. You talk a lot about turning things into purpose. Specifically, you talk about what a difference between a pessimist and an optimist is. You, you write that an optimist is somebody who finds opportunity and difficulty, and a pessimist is somebody who finds difficulty and opportunity. How do you take a low grade of how much percentage that you're going to succeed on, on a wave and turn that into optimism? You know, <clears throat> this is where, where, where surfing is, is, very, is very different. Um, because most other sports, well, not most, all other sports are defined by numerics. Mm. Um, you know, there's a batting average, uh, RBIs, uh, you know, what, whatever the sport, football, baseball, basketball, soccer, there's a number associated with it. With, with surfing, there, there's, there's, there's no 
number associated with surfing in a general sense. Surfing competitively, yes, you do get a score for a particular wave. You get a subjectively judged score, just like uh, you know, boxing matches is is sub subjectively judged. So th there is, I think, a difference there uh, with with the way that we surf, we see surfing, and the way that I respond to surfing now, even though my surfing career is is a long way behind it. And and I really do, like I said in the little clip that I like, to look below the surface. Like, what are the lessons that surfing can teach me about commitment, about hope, about attitude, about optimism, um, about, about pessimism? And I think fundamental to surfing is this feeling of stoke, this feeling of exhilaration, exuberance. And this is so, sort of the passion that drives you towards the sport. And then fundamental to that is that optimism and hope that you are going to get a wave out there because you're not guaranteed of getting a wave. But, but, but as surfers, we do have this hopeful, optimistic attitude that, yes, we're going to sit out there and maybe we'll sit out there for half an hour, but, but that wave will, will come to us. And you really talk about perspective as well. You talked about in the end of your book, the one-eye perspective. Uh, maybe explain that idea of the one eye, how two people can see the same thing as a difference in a different perspective. Yeah, so th 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 that was a funny story about uh, going surfing at a break in, uh, in in South Africa, a break I'd never surfed before, a break that didn't have shark nets. When I grew up, um, we would only surf in areas that had shark nets because there was you know, there's a good chance of being attacked by a Zambezi shark, which is like a smaller than a great white shark, but it's like a great white shark on steroids, very aggressive, wow. very aggressive shark. So we would only surf in netted areas. So this friend of mine took me to surf this, this break and had an amazing experience with him, just the two of us out in the wood. And I was getting these incredible tube rides, which is the ultimate in surfing. You ride inside this tunnel of water. It's called riding inside the tube. And that was really my specialty, um, uh, in surfing and I paddled up to my friend after experiencing some great tubers and I said you know what's what's the name of this wave because surfers have very descriptive uh, names for the waves they ride and he said it's called one eye I said well why do you call it one eye he said it's called one eye because when you're inside this tube inside this tunnel of water it looks like a human eye and and when you're inside the tube and you look out it does look like an eye because the the wave is sort of an oval shape and I went well that's a cool cool name and then I you know had some great waves and then I, I caught my last wave and I, I kicked out and I could feel this really eerie feeling and all the hairs on my arms stood up and I could feel that there was something in the water with me there. I, I knew that there was something big right there with me. And I looked over the side of my board and I saw this black shape heading towards me and I looked over the other side and there was another black shape. So I thought for the moment that I was going to get consumed by two Zambezi sharks at the same time and then burst out the water. It was two big dolphins. So these dolphins flew out the water and I just went, thank you, God, I'm not going to be consumed. And I, and, and I went in and I walked up the beach. Uh, and as I was walking up the beach, there was a fisherman on the beach. And he said to me, you haven't been surfing out there, have you? And I went, of course I've been surfing out there. I'm dripping wet. I have my wetsuit on my board under my arm. He said, do you know what we call the wave? I said, yeah, you, you call it one eye. He said, well, do you know why we call it one eye? I said, yeah, you call it one eye because when you were inside the tube, it, it looks like a human eye. He said, no, we call it one eye because there's a 12-foot Zambezi shark that lives out there in the lineup. And when it rolls over on its side to bite, all wow. you can see is one eye. <laughs> so so it, it, it's, it's a funny story about how two people, myself, having this amazing 
sublime experience riding inside the tube. And then there's the fisherman on the beach looking back at this break. And it's this place of terror where one eye lives. And it's just a funny story about how, how two people can see the same reality mm -hmm. very differently. And in the context of what's been happening in the world um, over the last um, three or four years yeah. and before, how, how we can all look at the same thing and we can perceive it completely differently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, one of the, the, the things that surfing teaches you is, is certainly respect for oneself, respect for the ocean, respect for others. Um, and perhaps there just needs to be more respect from all of us in terms of, of looking at life perhaps through someone else's eyes. That's a way that there, there can be more uh, unity and, and more uh, empathy in this world. So when you talk about unity and empathy, it, we begin this uh, episode, you talked about your parents and the suffering that they went through and the inspiration, if you wish, that you saw from what they went through. And I know you also went through your own suffering and the loss of, a, of your son of blessed memory in 2006. Uh, this is an interview that you talked about what you learned how to never come out of that suffering, but how to continue to lead your life as well. To me, living examples of how you could lead your life, even though you've suffered and you've been through a tragic period. And then I lost my beautiful son, 15 and a half years old. My wife and I were destroyed in 2006. <clears throat> Our lives were shattered. And it took many years, but slowly we, we re rebuilt the pieces. And surfing certainly helped me uh, you know, rebuild the pieces. It took a while before you know, my stoke was burning again because it was extinguished after that. I had no, no desire to go surfing and ultimately I did, I did go surfing um, and it helped me through, through those terrible times. So you talked about the light being extinguished and in your book you talked about this sort of moment of aha when I believe you were sitting in a shul in the synagogue and uh, you looked at the Ner Tamid, the eternal light, and you realized that your son would always be with you. Maybe if you're comfortable sharing just the experiences of both being broken, but also re rekindling that light um, of your son that continues to, with you today. Yeah, I think after that period, uh, when my wife and I lost our, our child, and you think that... Um, you know, you, you think that, that Hashem's deserted you. You think God's deserted you. You think, how, how could this happen to me? I've been, a, you know, I was a good person. I try to do good for my sport, for my country, for, for my friends, my family. And like, how, how could this, how could this happen? How could this happen to me? You know, you feel sort of, you feel deserted. You feel adrift. Um, Life is dark. And then uh, I, I started uh, going back to my old shul where I had my bar mitzvah and it was called Temple David, beautiful name, in, uh, in Durban. And, and I would sit there and I'd look up, look up at the ark um, and then I'd look up at the near to mid and um, I think about light and I think about, I think, I, I think about how this is sort of foundational 
to life, to religion, to Judaism. Um, and my son had written this essay shortly before, before he died. And in this essay, he'd, he'd written the words, the light shines ahead. It was about, it was about tube writing. It was about what, it was about what I, um, I was sort of known for in surfing about creating a whole new way to write the tube. And he, he wrote these words. So these words were, were very much a, a part of him. They became a part of me. And then, um, when we were we were recovering from the terrible loss and uh we were, were in, a, in a in a hospital and uh a friend came to see us and he said i have i have a message from matthew and one bolt of lightning hit that hospital one huge thunderclap out of a completely clear sky rabbi it was like mind blowing to be sitting there and, and have someone say, I have a message from Matthew. He wants to know he's okay. He made a mistake, one bolt of lightning. And it was like God had was telling me something. And then that was sort of a start of our path forward in that one bolt of light. Uh, eventually, a friend of mine that I was at school with kept phoning me up, Sean, I'd love, it to, I'd love to take you surfing again. You need to go surfing again. You need... And it had been a couple of months and eventually said, okay, I'll, I'll go surfing with you. So he took me to a break. And this is how, this is how life and God can work. So he took me to this break. I'd never surfed before. And we walked down these steps and the sun was rising. It's on the East coast where I used to live in South Africa. So the sun was rising out of the ocean. It was just amazing. It was like, it was such an amazing sight to see the sun boiling up out of the, the ocean. And, and, you know, I just felt connected connected to my son and connected to life, connected to God. And, and then I paddled out. And then as I was crying, and as I was crying, it was like the waves were washing into me and they were washing my tears away. It was, it was, it was, it was amazing. And then I sat and I waited for a wave and I could feel Matthew was with me. You know, Matthew, his name in Hebrew means gift from God. That, that's what that's what awesome. was. So I caught my first wave and I could feel, man, Matthew was with me and I, I rode the first wave and paddled back out and I rode another wave and paddled back out and rode another wave. And then I paddled back out and I, and I said to my friend, what's the name of this wave? He said to me, sunrise. How oh. bad. That was the name of the, and, and you know, with all these things coming together, um, I felt that there was something bigger there was, it wasn't just me, but there was something there that was what, what was a lot bigger that was there to maybe guide me and and comfort me. And then, you know, I went my life, I took my life down a different mm -hmm. path. I, I went down a path of um, using what I'd learned and using the, what I'd managed to do to, deal with with my loss how could i perhaps help other people and i found it really really helped me yes it helped others but it really helped me and that's the path that i've been on for the last since since 2006 speaking and uh showing people how how to make sense of tragedy and how to make sense of life and perhaps 
here's my perspective. That's all I do. I don't give a prescription. Here's my perspective and here's my code. And I talk about surface code, this code that I developed many years ago before I lost Matthew and how everyone can use their code. 12 lines, every line begins with how will to create a new path and a new start. So here's the, uh, the code when you appeared on the Today Show, I believe just uh, this past year. And this idea of the code and the stories that come out of that code are unbelievable, like you said, from the woman who wrote you from prison and just all of these different people. So this is uh, Sean Thompson on the Today Show talking about the meaning of the code. The code I developed uh, about 20 years ago, I wrote 12 lines, every line beginning with I will, to empower these young people that were coming down to the beach that was facing an environmental problem. So it was, I will always paddle back out. I will mm. never turn my back on the ocean. Basic lessons that surfing had taught me about life. And now I get hundreds of thousands of people around the world to write their own. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that don't all have to do with surfing or the ocean. or Correct. Businessmen, PTSD survivors, mm -hmm. people in rehab clinics, uh, massive uh, uh, conglomerates. Mm. So it's, it's just a way for people to empower themselves and think about how to catch the next wave. Yeah. How to catch the next wave. And in that clip, you talk about the difference between I try and I will. Because I try, you said it's up here. But I will. When you write that on paper, you see what you did. So explain the how you went from the surfer's code, I believe, many years ago to the code, which is uh, just out more recently. Yes. Yeah, so um, I wrote surfer's code many years ago to inspire and empower these young people that were coming to the beach. As, as a way to inspire environmental consciousness. And I made them up, I, I turned the printer, the 12 lines into a little card and I gave the cards out and the cards became popular and the cards eventually led to my first book called Surface Code, which was an exploration of each of the 12 lines. But every single line began with those two words of absolute unequivocal commitment, I will. And especially from an athlete, an athlete's perspective, you will not succeed unless you have a committed attitude. There is no way, no matter what sport you play, unless you are absolutely committed, you will not succeed. But athletics is, is very difficult. And sometimes it's very hard to focus and find a clear path forward. And I've found 12 lines, every line begins with our will. It's a really wonderful way to look at your life and to look at your mission in uh, in a very simple but very effective and and powerful way. So, I was speaking at a school after I came out with my first book about surface code, and, and on the spur of the moment, I said to the the young young students, they were high school students, a little school in Santa Barbara. Surface code's my code. I wrote it in fifteen minutes, twelve lines. Every line begins with our will. What about all of you writing your codes? Twelve lines. Every line begins with our will. Just write down your purpose. Write your path. Find your power. So the very first line of code I got back was from a young girl. And this was this was in 2006 or 2007. I will be myself. Mm -hmm. Now, based on what had happened to our beautiful son who played a dangerous game he heard about at school, they all wore school ties. He played a terrible game called the choking game. This young girl, and we'll never know whether it was this peer pressure, was this... But he heard about it at school. Um, but this girl was, I will be myself, power. She wasn't going to be victimized. She wasn't going to be bullied. She was going to go down her own path. And then all these other kids wrote these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful lines. 
So it led to another book called The Code, The Power of I Will. Um, and ultimately now, millions of people have written their codes around the world, 12 lines. Every line begins with I will. It's just a simple way, not only to define your purpose, but also it's a simple way to deeply connect with other human beings. So when I do these in a, in a big corporate event and people stand up, or I do it in a prison, people stand up and they read their codes. A lot of times people will start crying. Mm -hmm. because it's, this is an intensely vulnerable process to, for someone to look inside your heart and find the best part of yourself and write that down in the context of 12 lines, every line beginning with I will. So not only does it show absolute commitment, focus and purpose, but it also shows deep love for self and deep love for others. Because I've read millions of lines of code and this is life purpose, Rabbi, as I've seen it in the context of a code. The two principal commitments that people write, number one is I will be better. We want to be better dads. We want to be better spouses. We want to be better team members. We want to learn more. We want to, we, we want to, we want to be better. And then we want to help others be better. So when people write their codes, it's one or the other, but it's always the one or the other. We want to be better and we want to help others be better. So it's a really sim simple, simplistic, simple definition of, of our purpose. How are we going to be better and how are we going to help others be better? How simple is that? Yeah, simple, but uh, simple in words, but uh, but difficult in action. And you, I'm, I'm not sure if it's you or Noah in the Surfer and the Sage that speak about forgiveness and the idea of before you forgive others, you actually have to forgive yourself as well. Absolutely, both of us. But I, I mean, both of us, both of us talk about that. So I spoke at a at at a uh, a jail here in in Santa Barbara before COVID. And I spoke to this group of, of, of male and female prisoners, but I spoke to this group of, of male prisoners and, and very, um, you know, very, very tough guys, um, all in there for a variety of different uh, infractions. And uh, all of them wrote their codes and then they stood up and, and read it. And then the one guy stood up and started reading his code and he was very strong, very imposing type of guy. And he starts reading his code in front of the other in front of the other inmates and he comes to the line i will forgive myself and he starts crying now i'm looking going well what are the other prisoners going to do are they going to see this as a sign of weakness or vulnerability mm -hmm. they all started crying and gathered around him and put their arms around him wow. and hugged him and i could see there that that this little process this little code that started out as as empowering children is such a wonderful way to connect and unite people rabbi because division and lack of respect for others uh, the, this is a fundamental malaise you've got republicans on one side of the valley you've got democrats on the other side of the valley and you have this black vacant space mm -hmm. in between and mm -hmm. i like to think that this little code this little open source code is a little bridge between the two. And you know what my goal is? I would love the 100 senators 
I was just about to time. say, what if you went to Congress and did the code for them? One at a time, stand up. Mm -hmm. and you read your 12 lines. Let mm -hmm. me tell you, I will guarantee you the mm -hmm. country will be better off for it. Absolutely. Because when people not only stand up with pride and power and purpose when they read their codes, when they listen to what other people have written and they see that we are connected by these common values, we are way more connected than we are disconnected. But, yeah. but what's happening is media and partisanship is driving us apart. And I think this code is such a wonderful little tool to help bring us together. It costs nothing other than 15 minutes of, of, of investment. You actually spoke about in the book, something. sometimes nothing is a louder opinion than listening. Something. Sometimes nothing is a louder opinion than listening. And I wrote to you the other day that that's the essence of the Shema, which is a declaration of our faith, that Shema means obey, but really it means listen. And so this power of listening in connection with the idea of forgiving yourself, I think, goes hand in hand and something yeah. that's missing in our, in our communities today. Yeah, the Shema, I mean, that, that hero Israel, it, it's just, it's, it's so, um, it's so beautiful. And, you know, it's so sad to see, you know, anti-Semitism rear its, rear its ugly head again. And, and, you know, I think over the last number of years, people have, there's been this sort of permission to be an anti-Semite from many, many, many people. So, you know, I grew up in a segregated society. I grew up under apartheid in, in South Africa. And yes, we were Jews, but we were, you know, we were part of the privileged uh, uh, white class. And, and uh, ultimately, South Africa became a, became a democratic nation when Nelson Mandela was released from prison in 1990. And we had our first democratic elections in 1994. But I mean, I saw racism and anti-Semitism firsthand. I was in the, when I was a teenager, when I was 17 years old, I was in the, in the South African army. And, and uh, yes, there was, um, you know, anti-Semitism directed towards us Jews, because, you know, we would, we, we would, people knew you just, you know, we eat kosher food. And even though, you know, I wasn't really that, but we, we you know, the, everyone knew who the Jews were. So, um, I remember the one day, uh, and the Jews in South Africa, from my father's generation that fought in the Second World War, mm -hmm. these were all tough guys. They were fighters. You know, these were the the Austra you know the Australian Jews, the South African Jews. You know, they, they, they were they, they, they a lot of them had come from a school of hard knocks. They were tough guys. You know, they were one one step removed from immigrants coming to the country with nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, my grandfather repaired kettles mm -hmm. and, you know, eventually became a, a, you know, a successful entrepreneur and businessman. But there was never, there was no tolerance, zero, there was zero to tolerance for anti-Semitism. You didn't sit down and cop it. You know, a guy came up to me, I was sitting down in the back of an army truck and, and uh, hey, Jew boy, that's my seat. There's a big tough, you know, the bully. Hey, Jew boy, it's my seat. So now what are you going to do? You're going to go, yeah, okay, have the seat. Or I stood up, I hit him with my head so hard, I broke his nose, dropped him to the ground. Jew boy was never mentioned again 
Oh. In that army barracks. But you, you know, that obviously is um I mean, I'm not a I, I'm 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 not a adherent of of violence, but sometimes you just gotta stand up for for what you believe in. And there's just been this I, I, I don't know, when you have this disgraceful individual Kanye West and Nicholas Fuentes, you know, walking around, strutting around Trump's compound, uh, uh, sprouting his, sprouting his uh, vindictive, disgraceful uh, words. It's it's words have got power. Words have unbelievable power. That's why I encourage people: when you write your code, your words have got power, and they got power for good, and they got power for evil too. Uh, and I think the power for good and power for evil—that's crucial and in fact i think that deals with attitude and you quote the brilliant and holocaust survivor victor frankel the last of the human freedom is to choose one's own attitude the last of the human freedom is to choose one's own attitude and that's i think what we're choosing today and hopefully more people are choosing the attitude of the code as opposed to using these words for destruction for evil for division as well so when you talk about surfing and when we began we talked about the firmament sort of being in between the land and the heaven it seems like that surfer is that moment that that the surfer is the person that can change that attitude as well uh maybe just talk about a little about jews in surfing uh you don't often hear as that as a sport that you know young kids are taking up i grew up in upstate new york not near a body of water now i'm living in los angeles near a body of water what would be your advice to young kids who are interested in the sport um to, to to take this on yeah i think i think just just get out there if, if you have any interest you can you can buy an inexpensive softball get a teacher and uh, and get out and get out there i mean you know i would say that i feel closest to god when i'm in the water it's just a beautiful way to to connect with nature and also to connect with um to connect with your faith so Yes, there are not that many Jewish surfers around. Um, I mean, I'm the only Jewish world champion, and I was very honored to be in, inducted into the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in um, in Netanya in Israel. And you know, I went over there uh, for the induction. It, it was a wonderful ceremony. But they phoned me up and they said, "Hey, Sean, we want to have the surfing was introduced uh, into Israel by this wonderful man, Doc Paskovitz. He was a Stanford-trained doctor and a surfer." wonderful family, I know his whole family, and he introduced surfing in the early 60s to Israel. But they'd never ever had a surf contest, a pro surfer had never been to Israel. So they invite me there, they said, Sean, we're going to have our first ever surfing contest in Tel Aviv at Hilton Beach, right in front of the Hilton Hotel. I said, you know, we'd like you to come out. Uh, we'd like you to open the event. We'd like you to give an exhibition. We're going to have the mayor of Tel Aviv, the mayor of Jerusalem. We're going to have the American ambassador down there. He said, we're going to get 20,000 people there. I went, no way. So I fly and I land in Tel Aviv. This is like early 80s. <clears throat> and I land and I, I get off the, the, the plane. And I'm walking towards the airport terminal. And there's hundreds and hundreds of people all screaming and shouting. And I'm going, wow, there's got to be some sort of rock star on this plane. And they all scream. And as I get close to them, they're all screaming and shouting for me. It was such... It was such a wonderful, wonderful experience to get that that amazing welcome. So now they take me to the hotel, 
And I think as I remember, I'm staying on the 13th floor overlooking the break where the surf cart is going to be held the next day. And it's absolutely flat. I'd never seen the Mediterranean before. There's not even any white water. It's like a bath. Again, <laughs> it's impossible, impossible that they're going to have the surf contest tomorrow because it's absolutely unrideable. So that night we go out and we, we go out to all these parties and we're just having a fantastic time when you get home really, really late. And then I wake up the next morning and I pull open the curtains and there's the surf, four to six feet, perfect. I'm going, only the Jews could pull this off. <laughs> maybe, it was the, uh, maybe it was the song of the sea. Micha mocha ba'eli madonai, who is like yeah. God. And that's what, maybe that's what they sang when they actually crossed the Red Sea. It was so it was so funny to see this this incredible wave. And then we had thousands of people there and I gave an exhibition. It was just amazing. Any of the Jews could pull it off. Eh? <laughs> so I wanna conclude on a lighter note in terms of this beautiful, you know, the, the the surf the sport of surfing and this video of I believe J Bay. And maybe you can explain your love of J Bay. Wave. I love that wave. Uh, I first started surfing Jeffries in 1968 and um, my first trip to Jeffries I went there with a short board and in those days we only surfed right at the end of the break called the point because the waves were uh, it was just considered too fast and too dangerous we had no leg ropes then so it was you know very uh, very intimidating to surf there on a big day and it really helped me in in identifying what kind of lines I need to draw it's just this beautiful, long, powerful, strong wave. So the uh, lines that you need to draw, where are the lines between living that sort of dangerous life in the tube and, I don't know, living a life that I guess is safe and we don't take any risk? Yeah, I think for, um, you know, with as sort of a former athlete and someone who still loves surfing, you know, risk is risk is just part of that experience. It's part of that commitment. It's part of taking the taking that chance. And and I think the the great the greatest athletes are the athletes that put it all on the line and they're not scared to fail. Mm. Um, and you know, I've certainly taken those lessons through into my business life and. You know, I like to think that that, that that I go for it. I'm I'm not afraid to fail. Um, you know, in that little surface code, I wrote um, one of the lines, and perhaps one of my favorites is, "I'll always paddle back out." So you know, you can try and you can fail and you can wipe out, but then you have the hope and the optimism to jump back on your board and paddle back out and to find that next wave. So for for me, that's a that's a good way to end, uh, uh, Rabbi. That I will always paddle back out. I think it's a wonderful metaphor for people who have been suffering in today's times um, that there will be another way for all of us. We just got to paddle back out to find it. Yeah, and I think that's a beautiful message, not just for the Jewish people. In fact, we're called in the book of Zachariah, Asirei Tikva, prisoners, but in fact, prisoners of hope. And what you do, not just in prisons, but in schools and life is show us that way of Tikva, show us that way of hope and the idea of that's what we've done as the Jewish people from literally the destruction of the temple and the first exile to today that we continue and continue to paddle back out as well. Uh, I'm actually would love for you to maybe join us at Sinai Temple on Passover when we read that song of the sea and uh, address us in terms of what the meaning of the sea is within our own lives. In fact, uh, many, many years uh, 
past that miracle because we continue to read that miracle today. Sean, well, yep, go ahead. Amazing, Rev. I would love to come down there for Pesach. So connect me up, and it would be so wonderful to come down and uh, you know meet meet uh, meet the congregation, meet some of the, the the students. It would be really cool. Thank you, and we are just uh, thrilled to have Sean Thompson, world champion surfer. If you don't have this book yet, please make sure you have this on your shelf, The Surfer and the Sage. If you haven't written your code of the twelve lines of I will, make sure you uh, begin that process as well as changing that attitude in life from despair to hope. Sean, it's so great to have you on Rabbi in the Sidelines, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Rabbi. Cheers.